What's up everybody, Sean here, and I wanted to drop in and give you guys a quick update slash disclaimer for this week's episode. Now it's not the normal disclaimer where I say, you know, we're going to get really offensive or really weird. Instead, it's to let you guys know we're actually taking this week off. With the holiday fast approaching and our fingers in several different projects we're currently working on, we thought it might be best to go ahead and take a week off to get caught up on things. But we didn't want to leave you empty-handed. Now, coincidentally, I've had a lot of people reach out and tell me that while they enjoyed our Abduction to the Ninth Planet series, the specific filter I added on Preston's Dow character made the episodes almost unintelligible or at least very difficult to listen to if you're using any kind of stereo headset or apparently in a car. So what I'm going to do is actually this week, right now, following this disclaimer, release a master cut of all three parts on one episode. There's no news, there's no intros, it's just all three parts into one episode. I changed the filter, I got rid of that god-awful ping-pong meets, you know, scrap metal filter I put on there. I will say it sounded great on my computer, but then again, I'm just wearing a pair of cheap earbuds. So I will start paying more attention to that. But anyway, I wanted to re-release that as one long master cut. That way you can go back and listen to it again and maybe get some more enjoyment out of it by not having to suffer through somebody playing Pong with a couple of toasters. Second update is... 13 Nightmares will be out soon. I know we keep saying that, but in this case, it does sometimes take a little longer to get new shows out onto iTunes. I've just about got the edit done. We're very excited to be sharing that with you guys, so please just hang in there. Um, It's looking like there's the potential it might not get released till after Christmas, maybe the first part of the new year in January. Uh, We'll give you more updates, but uh, it sounds like there might be a bit of a lag getting new shows up. It might not be going up as fast as we want it to once we submit it. But anyway, it's coming. It's a lot of fun. We really hope you guys uh, enjoy that. We're sorry that's taking so long. But we hope you guys all have a wonderful week. Thank you again for listening, supporting, so on and so forth. And please enjoy this master cut of Abduction to the Ninth Planet. So I'm excited to do this show. It's a story I came across a while back, and it's got a long, rich background story to the history of the Earth. We have robots. Mm. We have lasers. Mm. We have space travel and a plot twist that not even George Lucas could think of. And the book is called Abduction to the Ninth Planet from French author Michel Desmarquette. So Michel starts off by saying one night he awoke suddenly Time felt distorted, and he kind of, you know, was asking these questions in the back of his mind, like, you know, how long have I been asleep? What time is it? And he just was, like, pumped. Like, he just took a hit of cocaine. Like, he's up. He's ready to go. (laughs) And he looks over, and his wife, you know, she's sleeping peacefully next to him. And he makes his way down to the kitchen, and he looks on the clock, and it says 1230 a.m., So this is unusual for him, especially since he had no recollection on when he went to sleep, but the sense of hours had passed. And he had this urge to change his clothes, like this little voice in the back of his mind was like, you know, go put a shirt on, go put pants on. And it's like he was watching himself being driven with no control of what's going on. And then with a fresh shirt and a new pair of trousers, he finds himself writing a note to his wife 
who was still peacefully sleeping in the bedroom above. My dear, I'll be away for about 10 days. Absolutely no need to worry. So now he's walking out the door and outside in the cool air of the night in his home in Australia. Everything is strangely lit and the, un, uh, the usual song of crickets and critters is strangely absent. He thinks to himself how odd everything looks and how now it is bathed in this strange blue light. He looks down and realizes that, that uh, the bed of garden flowers from his yard is below him. And now he's eerily floating higher and higher above them. And that light bulb moment goes off. And he now realizes that that weird blue light is like a weird tractor beam. And holy shit, what the fuck is going on? Ah, panic sets in. And uh, he's, you know, having an attack. And then he hears this voice. All is well, Michelle. And at this point, he's thinking, I have to be dreaming. This is all a dream. Because before him was a human being of impressive size, like nine foot tall. She, wink, wink, was wearing a one piece suit mm. and com- that was completely transparent. She had a helmet. And he, it's weird because you think that this would be the perfect time to describe what this alien female looks like in the book. But he doesn't. Not till like four chapters <laughs> later. So I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead for a second and let you guys know that before him was a nine foot tall and, you know, Swedish blonde, Nordic blonde, just stunning, beautiful babe. OK, like a nine foot Pamela Anderson in a space jumpsuit was standing before him. <laughs> Did you say Charlie's their own instead? Okay. I mean, I'm not picky here, Steve. Whatever works for you. You sure can't paint this a is, picture. Yeah. And Emma so he hears that. Sean. <laughs> oh. Hey, at least you didn't say Drew Barrymore. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So the alien lady says, no, you are not dreaming. And it's like she can read his thoughts because he wasn't, you know, saying out loud, like, you know, what the fuck is going on? He was just thinking this. So this, you know, nine foot tall Amazonian blonde is now reading his thoughts and he starts babbling about how, you know, it always happens this way. He's, you know, he's always got this weird dream and, you know, he's trying to convince himself this is all just a dream. But you're speaking to me in French, my native tongue. But we're here in Australia. I do speak English, you know. So do I. It has to be a dream. One of those stupid dreams. If not, though. What are you doing on my property? We're not on your property, but above it. Ah, fuck it. I'll, I'll pinch myself. Ah, damn it. Now are you satisfied, Michelle? But if it's not a dream, then why am I sitting here on this rock? Wait, what the fuck? Who are those people over there? They're dressed in the fashion of last century. So the landscape has changed. He's he was floating above his house, you know, bathed in this weird blue light, and now he's in this like upside down. So think of like a Stranger Things version of Earth sitting on this rock, and it happened within a blink of an eye. And groups of people can be seen: Revolutionary era soldiers, you know, all eras of people are walking around in this weird gray mist. And Michelle goes on to say, "I was beginning to distinguish in the milky light people talking, and at a slight distance." Others were moving around. And you, who are you? Why aren't you normal-sized? But I am normal-sized, Michelle. On my planet, we are all this size. But everything in good time, my dear friend. Do you mind me calling you that? If we aren't good friends already, 
I'm sure we will be soon. Damn right. So at this point, things are going good, right? She's all smiles and giggles, and he's feeling this, you know, goodness, universal love, hippy-dippy shit flowing from her, and he feels totally at ease. So classic abduction story right now. It's that good old milky light. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Of course you can call me what you wish. And what is your name? My name is is Dow. But first, I would like you to know, once and for all, that this is not a dream. Indeed, it is something quite different. For certain reasons, which will be explained to you later, you have been chosen to undertake a journey which very few earthlings have made, particularly in recent times. We are, you and I, at this moment, in a universe which is parallel to that of Earth, In order to admit you, as well as ourselves, we have made use of an airlock. So, at this point, reading the story, this is how I understood it. Um, To be able to travel in interstellar space and at light speed, these aliens have to use this alternate dimension, an upside down, if you will, to stage and propel their craft to bend time and space. Also, if you're taking someone across time and space and wanted to place them back in a reasonable amount of time so they don't return like a thousand years into the future, you would use this alternate dimension. But the alien gives a more detailed explanation. That's cool. At this instant, time has stopped for you, and you could remain here 20 or 50 of your earthly years and then return as if you hadn't left. Your physical body would remain absolutely unchanged. But what are those people doing? They exist as well and can be expected. And as you will later later learn, their population density is very low. Death only occurs by suicide or accident. Time is suspended. There are men and women as well as some animals who are 30,000, 50,000, or even many more Earth years old. But why are they here and how did they come here? Where were they born? On Earth. They are all here by accident. By accident? What do you mean? It is very simple. You have heard of the Bermuda Triangle. Well, quite simply, is this spot in less well-known areas, this parallel universe becomes confused with your universe, so that there exists between them a natural warp. People, animals, objects, finding themselves in the immediate vicinity of this warp are literally sucked into it. Thus, you can have, for example, entire fleet of boats disappear in several seconds. Sometimes a person or persons can pass back into your universe after several hours, several days, or several years. More often, though, they never return. So, dinosaurs, Neanderthals, cavemen, Bigfoots, Bipedal species lost to history. Yes, Steve. Knights Templars, French and British soldiers from the 1700 era, Civil War soldiers, every fucking thing that has ever walked across this earth who happened to accidentally cross these warp areas are now trapped in this timeless dimension, never aging, never have a thirst, they are never hungry, they never feel pain, and their only escape is suicide or being squashed or eaten by a fucking dinosaur. And then, the body they leave behind never rots. So check this out. The whole thing you described this, I was picturing somebody drawing an animation for like YouTube of this section. And then like at the very end, it just got Amelia Earhart. What up? <laughs> like or some shit like that. It's crazy. Cause it's like everything that passes up through here ends up on our side. And he's just like, 
that's the boatyard. And it's just fucking just hundreds and hundreds of boats. And they're like, <laughs> mountain of boats. Yeah, they got like sad faces on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Just piles of car keys left. Yeah, like just random ass shit. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, that's like their, that's like their hobby there. Cause they all like walk around like, like the people in us. They're just drones, you know, like doppelgangers. And then they just like go in there <clears throat> and, uh, just look for scrap that, that falls through the shit. <laughs> so good. So Dow goes on to say, There was a typical case of this passage into a parallel universe in North America, where a young man literally vanished while going to fetch water from a well, which was situated several hundred meters from his house. About an hour later, family and friends set out in search for him, and there had been a fresh snowfall about 20 centimeters. It should have been quite simple. They had only to follow the footprints left by the young man. But right in the middle of the field, the footprints stopped. There were no trees around, no rocks to jump onto. He simply vanished. So I can't help but think that a large portion of missing 411 uh, cases can't be explained by this, like hunters and kids. You always hear that in those cases, like the trail just goes cold, like you see the footprints and then they just disappear. So maybe, you know, hitting this warp and uh, they're just kind of stuck in this timeless void. And, you know, that's where they're all at. So do you did, did you watch the Fringe, the TV show? Uh, yeah, I mean, vaguely. So like in that, in that show, all this weird paranormal shit starts happening and throughout the case of the show, you figure out that it's like, oh, okay, there's basically the same reality. We have just an alternate reality of it and that veil has been broken. And so people start vanishing because something happens to the other, that type of thing. Like, so like I, I could totally see that type of shit with missing four one. Cause when you started describing before I read down, I was like, oh, that's probably what happened to them four one one people. Well, and you always yeah. hear tales, too, of people assuming that Bigfoot is interdimensional, and that would explain a lot, too, if you he can kind of just... solely make... agrees. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> what if I looked over and there's just this disembodied hand reaching out of the wall <laughs> grabbing my cat? <laughs> oh, my... Like, ah! <laughs> Sorry, Amelia Earhart wanted a cat. <laughs> well, and you know what's funny is I can't remember where they were at, but there was a missing 411... Uh, special that David Politis did for like history or travel channel, one of the two. And I want to say they were at Mount Shasta. I'll find out and I'll update this on the next episode. But there was this story of how like this guy went out with his wife and his kids and they were doing like a nature trail. And he was, I think he was much more in better shape than the rest of his family. And so he went off to do this kind of switchback trail on the other side of this, uh, this gorge so essentially, imagine like kind of an open uh, cliff, uh, you know, a cave on the, I'm uh, sorry, uh, a, a cliff on the side of this mountain you could sit on or sit in, and then across the little chasm there, you could see people walking a nature trail. Well, her husband, this lady's husband, went across there to go up the switchback trail, and he was never seen again. And it's super creepy because the last photo of this man was taken by another, like a guy and his daughter and his daughter's friend were taking photos, you know, kind of like selfies and stuff like that. And they took a photo and you can see about half of this guy just walking out of the frame of the camera and he disappeared. Nobody ever saw him again. And so they set up this, uh, this laser grid and they shoot this laser from like one side of this cave to the other side of it. And they have these markers and these, you know, sensitive pads and it can measure basically the time it takes from the laser to reach the starting point to this other, you know, sensor. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm doing a poor job of explaining this, but long story short, there was a time disturbance inside of this laser. Like it was shining from one area to another in this cave. That's and both so of these cool. It's it's crazy. I'll have to I'll have to rewatch it and, and do a better job of it. That's why I love thing. caves, man. Because I I always think about like caves that are so deep no one's ever explored like there could be something like that down there, like a fucking portal to hell or yeah. you know, alternate dimension well, or you know, or just beans in general. Like I love that stuff. Yeah. Love exactly. It. it it was it was super weird. Um it was super weird because the place they set these two sensors, these, these lasers, were in these two like perfectly round holes that were dug in this cave that were supposed to be used for um, like different ceremonies and whatnot from the Indians years ago. And mm-hmm. so they set up the two lasers here in each of these. And they're probably like, I don't know, 10 feet apart. And they said it was really strange because there was a disturbance in the time it took from the laser to reach the sensor from these two holes and they said it could be some kind of portal. And essentially it was something that they discovered on the filming of that episode that science couldn't quite explain. Like they were actually kind of like, holy shit, what did we just discover? The upside down that the aliens use it in (laughs) dimensional (laughs) travel. Right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? The native Americans could have found it way back when. Yeah, Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, exactly. Um, the white man's coming. Let's go through the fucking portal. Don't go through there. Yeah. We need to. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to research that again. But I'm pretty sure it's Mount Shasta. But yeah, anyway, I mean, that kind of goes further along with your guys with the story there about having yeah, this, that's cool. this extra dimension. So yeah. Well, anyways, at this point, both her and Michelle are attacked by a group of Neanderthals. Their clubs are raised in the air, ooga booga, and then bam. Dal fiddles with this Buck Rogers extra special space belt contraption thing, and these multi-light <laughs> beams shoot out from her belt and hit the caveman in the head, and pew, 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 they fall down dead. Did you kill them? I had to. What do you mean you had to? Were we really in danger? I mean, they were people, for God's sakes. Of course we were. These are people who have been here for 10 or 15 thousands of years. Who knows? We don't have time to establish that. And besides, it is of no importance. These people have passed into the universe at a certain time, and they have lived in that time ever since. We have freed them from their purgatory. So they bullshit for, you know, a few more minutes about the whole purgatory thing. And, you know, he's like, I can't believe he killed these people. And then this about 100 meters away, uh, they find this, like, I don't know, smooth as a baby's ass, egg-like spaceship. All right, so like uh, Mork and Mindy or whatever that show is that Robert Williams, like Robert. think of that, but like bigger. Wait, back up. Robert Williams? <laughs> Robert Williams? You is that like a- fuck up right now and apologize. That's a Dollar Tree fucking version of Robin Williams? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said Robin. You said Robert Williams. No, you said Robert, sir. Get the fuck yeah, out of here, dude. Fuck your alien Williams. story. <laughs> Get out of here. Whatever show he was in, it's Mork and Mindy, you uneducated swine yeah <laughs> robert robert williams it's like fucking dollar yeah, tree that's, version man. that's strike one and two buck you can watch it <laughs> oh. oh but he but he brought a buck rogers quote so it saves him a point yeah it saves on, me a point right the there nice motherfucker <laughs> 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 anyways so the egg spacecraft's got this blue light that shimmers um and it's like heat wave moving in the air and so all of a sudden, it's like 10 meters above him. And just like Star Trek, she hits this button on her shoulder and a light envelops him. And at this moment, she says to him, 
Do not touch me under any pretext, Michelle. Whatever happens, under any pretext, do you understand? And then, bam, they're aboard the spaceship. So the first thing Michelle notices is how bright all the colors are. Like the walls have this intense yellow glow, yet depending on the angle, um, maybe like a blue beyond words, like it's like LSD times 10, like it's just intense. And he's given a helmet similar to the one that Dow is wearing, and they make their way to a room that has two coffins or metal boxes lying in the middle. Michelle's instructed to lay into one, and he feels a cool mist go over his body. And then in front of him, a screen appears, and it's showing him a view from out, uh, from outside the spacecraft. First, Earth growing smaller, and then Saturn. The VR At booth. this time, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At this time, Mich- Michelle is told that they are now traveling several times the speed of light, and he's instructed to rise from the table. And Dow is holding up one blue pill and one red pill and a glass of liquid. And if anybody ever follows the paranormal, you know, there's like this rule of thumb that if they give you food, if they give you the drink, don't drink it, don't eat it. But yeah, he's like, yeah, what if I told you that all of this is <laughs> like Morpheus? Yeah. Wait, I've seen this movie before. Yeah. Am I yeah, I've seen Kong this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the beautiful space alien says, I'm going to give you these two pills, and in three hours, you will be able to consider yourself as pure as one of us. So at this point, she tells uh, Michelle that he's basically like a dirty monkey man, and those intense blue and yellow walls and the mist he felt were the first stages of disinfecting method to get rid of all the nasty earth bacteria and make it safe for him to interact with the space aliens. And this actually kind of reminds me of that story of Enoch, because Enoch was like, you know, the only human ever to go to heaven physically. And when he got up there, like the angels said, like, dude, you can't go before God looking like this. And so they had to give him a bath and he smelled really bad. So then they bathed him in this special oil and then they had to shave all the hair off and put him in these white robes and once he was you know clean uh, he was able to go before god and get all the instructions well hey didn't dolly parton write a song about that whole event too called why'd you come in here looking like that (laughs) (laughs) high heel boots and you're painted on jeans all right go back oh jesus go back to what you were saying (laughs) no that's so that's the next part's yours buddy oh shit (laughs) dow took me in her arms put me on the bunk and removed my mask what, is I that, saw that. Is hap- that code? <laughs> yeah, she had like a cat out of the closet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw that happen from two or three meters away from my body. I imagine that things in this book seem incomprehensible to the unwarned reader, but I saw my body from a distance, and I was able to move about in the room just by thought. Michelle, I know that you see me and hear me, but I'm not. I'm not able to see you myself. Therefore, I cannot look at you when I speak. Your astral being has left your body. This is no danger in that there's no danger in this. You needn't worry. I know that this is the first time this has happened to you, and there are people who panic. I have given you a special drug in order to cleanse your body of all the bacteria that is dangerous to us. I have also given you another drug that has caused your astral being to leave your body. This will last three hours, the time it will take to purify you. In this way, you will be able to visit our spacecraft without danger or contamination to us and without wasting time. So now he's basically like an astral floating around the ship. Um, they're making their way to the ship control room, and he sees this big TV screen or maybe like that uh, you know thing on Star Trek that the, you know, like, uh, the big, I don't know, the big TV screen on Star Trek, so right, like, at the front of the ship. Talking about right. the windshield? The what? No, the windshield? Like the, the display that, that like pops up and it's yeah. like, oh, we've got oh, okay. you now. 
Okay, uh, okay. So, so hold on. So basically, this astral floating, he's basically like that big gas thing, like from Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> I don't want to die. Uh, we're just trying, trying to, to you know, we're trying to make the story relatable to us, Preston, and how we can understand it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell me like I'm five. Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Suddenly, covering a huge area of what I had believed to be a wall of the cabin, I was stupefied to see an image of New York. No, that's Sydney, I said to myself. And yet the bridge was different. Was it even a bridge? My surprise was such that I had to ask Dow, at whose side was I standing? I'd forgotten, however, I was no longer in my physical body, and no one could hear me. I was able to hear Dow and others commenting on what they were seeing, but not understanding their language. It didn't get me far. I was convinced, though, that Dow had not lied to me, and therefore we had we had well and truly left Earth behind. My mentor had explained we were traveling at several times the speed of light, and I had seen Saturn pass by, and later what I took to be planets, suns, so we had come back, and why? Michelle, we are stationed above the planet Arimo X3, which is almost twice the size of planet Earth. As you can see on the screen, quite similar to your world. I can't ex explain at any length our current mission as I am required to participate in the operation, but I will do so later. To put you on the right track, I will tell you that our mission concerns atomic radiation such as you know on Earth. As I watched, I was surprised to see, slightly below the middle of our vessel, a small sphere ejected, like an egg from a hen. Once outside, the sphere accelerated rapidly towards the planet below. As it disappeared from view, another sphere emerged in the same manner, and then a third. I noticed each sphere was being monitored on separate screens by different groups of astronauts. My attention was especially drawn to the darkened place in the entrance of a huge building. I could have sworn something moved. I also felt there was a certain agitation among the astronauts. Abruptly, and with a series of jerks, the thing emerged into the light. I was horrified by what I saw. Apart from some utterances spoken more quickly, and a few exclamations in which emotion could be discerned, I must say they didn't really seem surprised. However, what we were seeing so clearly on the panel was a huge cockroach, about two meters long and 18 centimeters high. 80. 80. I'm sorry. 80 <laughs> centimeters high. 80 centimeters long. Okay. Squish. That's not that bad. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's a little over two feet tall. That's manageable. Yeah. <laughs> 80 centimeters high. The giant cockroach made its way towards the probe when a veritable swarm of the creatures emerged, spilling over one another. Just then, a ray of intense blue light beamed from the sphere, swept over the group, and reduced it instantly to carbonized dust. I fucking bam, bam, bam. literally got dusted. <laughs> Fuck out of here. So he goes on to say that each sphere was collecting samples from the planet, like air, water, soil. They returned to the ship, and they started toward the other side of the planet. Michelle describes the planet as being bathed in a red fog or dust, crumbled buildings, lakes, desert, and then they came upon a settlement of people. We received some excellent shots taken from one of the spheres that hovered above the beach at a height I judged to be about 40 to 60 meters from the ground. 
Its tube extended right to the shore. Very clearly, it transmitted a scene of a group of human beings. Indeed, at first sight, they were identical to the people found on Earth. We had a very close view. In the middle of the panel appeared a face of a woman of uncertain age. She had brown skin with long black hair that fell to her breasts. I could see on another screen she was quite naked. Only her face appeared to be deformed. She was mongoloid. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) It's such an odd word to use. (laughs) Uh. The best best part is like, I'm really getting into this story and I was not expecting that at all. (laughs) Oh, man. Has that? We're really, we're really bridging that fourth wall, aren't we? In this episode, oh, yeah. okay. So the uh, word, the word mongoloid is that. That's not very PC to use any longer, correct? No, not right, at all. It's basically, he's basically just saying that, like, um, you know, imagine like somebody from Mo- Mongolia, like uh, from the Asian steppes or whatever. What? Um, that's not no, what yes, that's no. That's... Mo- Mongoloids don't mean Mongolians. They mean mentally retarded, deformed. <laughs> yeah, they mean like severe, like severe like deformity of the face like a pinhead or oh man because in the book like he was totally describing her as like looking Paul Tunisian and like and then he's like you know like a mongoloid from, okay, from nice. Mongolia this is really bad because we have to decide whether Sean keeps this in or cuts it out because it's a fucking goal okay, listen we only keep it in because it's funny how it's, I, I think it's hilarious when someone doesn't know what a word means yes. or thinks it means something else like Preston when he's like I sure can't wait to go to BD's mongoloid barbecue and get some of that sweet <laughs> yeah, like, stir fry <laughs> BD like I bet you whenever I started laughing Preston's like what was so funny because I said breasts I'm like no because you said mongoloid dude like yeah I mean mongoloid okay so in his reference here mongoloid would be the right term because he says she was deformed mongoloid like Steve said was just an early 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 word for people that had severe mental retardation and physical deformities yeah or like uh, remember from American Horror Story, uh, the uh, was it season four when they had the pinheads? Yeah, that the they consider them mongoloids. Yeah. I think they even used that term in that season. Possibly, yeah, I they do. Totally yeah. see Michelle Lang's or uh, Jessica Lang's uh, character saying that shit. So, oh, there we go. This is a fun episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it gets right, better. Trust me. Let's get back into it. <laughs> I was going to reread the sentence and I got to Mongoloid and started giggling. (laughs) When I saw her, I didn't realize she was deformed. I simply assumed we had to contend with a race of humans only slightly different from our own, as science fiction writers like to describe them, all twisted with big ears and such. Still, we had other shots, and in this group, the men and women seemed to resemble the Polynesian race. It was, however, obvious that more then half of these people were either deformed or eaten away at what appeared to be leprosy. Oh, the, oh, the, they were talking about the toxic radiation mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. go right. They were looking towards a sphere and gesticulating, appearing to be greatly agitated. The people on the beach were surging back in masses towards the habitations and dived inside in one big rush while a line of men had formed armed with sabers or picks, facing the most incredible thing I had ever imagined. A group of red ants, each the size of a cow, were rushing from behind the rocks onto the beach, 
They moved quicker than horses in a gallop. Fucking Ant-Man, dude. <laughs> Wait, so they're fighting giant ants like that movie, The the Things? Yeah, and you guessed it. Space lasers. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> That's crazy. The sphere, the sphere returned to its earlier position above the beach and produced a special tool with <laughs> which it combed through the carcasses. I could see one of the astronauts seated at her desk talking into her computer. This prompted me to ask Dow if she was supervising the work being carried out. At this moment, this yes. Moment, yes. For, this For this work was not work originally was scheduled. scheduled. We are taking we samples of these creatures, creatures, pieces of lung pieces of in particular, in order to analyze them. We think certain types of radiation have produced this mutant form of creature. In fact, ants do not have lungs, but the only logical explanation for their sudden giantism is... Can you tell me what is happening? Who are these people? It would take too long to explain to you, Michelle, especially now that so much activity in, in the vessel. But I can satisfy your curiosity by explaining briefly. These people are, in a way, the descendants of certain ancestors of people existing still on your planet. In fact, a group of their ancestors peopled a continent on the planet Earth about 250,000 of your Earth years. Here, they possessed a civilization which was very advanced, but having raised enormous political barriers between themselves, they destroyed themselves 150 years ago with atoms. Huh. Do you mean a total nuclear war? Yes. Brought on by chain reaction, we come from time to time to take samples in order to study the degree of radiation still existing in various regions. Sometimes, too, just as a few moments ago, we helped them. Just then on the panel, we had a shot of a face, apparently that of a female. It was horrible. The poor creature had an enormous gash where her left eye should have been. Her mouth was positioned to the right of her face and appeared to be as a tiny little opening in the middle of her jaw, around which were lips that seemed fused together. On the top of her head, a single tuft of hair hung pitifully. We could now see her breasts, and very pretty they would have been if one didn't have a small wound on the side. With breasts like that, she must have been young? The computer puts her age at 19 years. Radiation? Of course. Other people appeared, some of whom were perfectly normal looking. There were males among them with an athletic build who looked to be, doing, who looked to be in their 20s. What is the age of the oldest, do you know? At present, we have no record of anyone older than 38, and a year on this planet is 295 days and 27 hours. Now, if you look at the screen, you can see a close-up of the genital area of that handsome and athletic man. As you will know, the genitals are totally anthropied. We've already worked out from previous expeditions that there are very few men actually capable of procreation, and yet there are a great number of children. It's the survival instinct of all races to reproduce as soon as possible. Thus, the obvious solution would be that the males capable of reproduction are studs. This man must be one of them, I think. So, okay, so this alien is like, take a look at this, <laughs> take a look at this slideshow I have for you. Zoom in right here. You notice right here that, like... <laughs> Ain't that cock a beauty? Like, which is crazy, because he's like, I can just imagine this, like, dude writing this book, he's like... Oh, this guy totally couldn't wait to get to this part. <laughs> All right, go on. We call his breed of human or his breed of creature fire hoses. <laughs> we were also able to see many children coming and going around small fires on which food was cooking. 
The men and women seated around the fireplaces were taking cooked pieces and sharing them with the children. The fire seemed like wood fires, but I couldn't be sure. They were fueled by something shaped rather like stones. Behind the fires, slabs similar to the boat's earlier scene were piled and assembled so as from sh- so as to form shelters that looked quite comfortable. In the camera's field of vision, no trees could be seen. Perhaps they didn't exist, because I had noticed green patches earlier as we flew over the continent. From between two huts, some little black pigs appeared, pursued by three furious yellow dogs, only to disappear rapidly behind another hut. I was dumbfounded and couldn't help but wonder if I was really looking down on another, on another planet. These humans looked like me, or rather, like Polynesians, and here were dogs and pigs. It was all more and more surprising. The sphere began to return, as did the other spheres, no doubt, that were being monitored by the screens. I could easily see from my position. The operation's return to ship was initiated, and all the spheres reabsorbed without incident, as the same before. So now they're back traveling at, the, uh, at light speed. The current quest is completed, and XP has been earned. <laughs> Dal introduces uh, Michelle to some of the crew. He meets Latoi, Barista, and Naola. They uh, get a long-distance phone call and put it on the big screen, and another tall, giant, blonde-haired woman addresses Michelle. Hello, Michelle. We wish you safe travel on Theuba. Turning to Dow, I asked what it had all meant. Had we rendezvoused with another spacecraft? And what was this Theuba or Theaula? Theuba, Michelle, is the name we have given to our planet, just like you call yours Earth. Our intergalactical base has been in touch with us, and we will be arriving in Theuba in 16 of your Earth hours and 35 minutes. It then occurred to me that not only this spacecraft, but also the intergalactic base, appeared to be manned by only women. An all-female team such as this would be quite exceptional on Earth. I wondered if Theauba was populated by only women, like space Amazons. I smiled at the image. I have always preferred the company of women rather than men. It was quite a pleasant thought. My question to Dow was direct. Are you from a planet solely populated by women? She looked at me with an apparent surprise. Then her face lit up with some amusement. I was a little concerned. Had I said something stupid? She took me by the shoulder and asked that I follow her. We left the control room and immediately entered a smaller room called the Hollis, which had quite a relaxing ambiance. Dow explained that we would not be interrupted in this room since the occupants acquired, by their presence, the right to absolute privacy. She invited me to choose one of the many seats that furnished the room. Michelle, there are no women aboard this spacecraft. Neither are there any men. You were what? Just robots? No, I think you misunderstand. In a word, Michelle, we are hermaphrodites. You know, of course, what a hermaphrodite is. Is your whole planet inhabited only by hermaphrodites? Yes. And yet your face and mannerisms are more feminine than masculine. Indeed, it might appear so, but believe me when I tell you that we are not women, but hermaphrodites. Our race has always been this way. I must confess, this all is very confusing. I'm going to find it difficult to think of you as he rather than the she 
I have done since I have been among you. You have nothing to imagine, my dear. We are simply what we are, human beings from another planet, living in a world different from yours. I can understand you would like to define us as one sex or the other, for you think as an earthling and as a Frenchman. Perhaps, for once, you could make use of the neutral gender of English and think of us as it. But how can reproduction of your race occur? Can a hermaphrodite reproduce? Of course we can, exactly as you do on Earth, the only difference being that we genuinely control the birth, but that is another story. In good time, you will understand, but for now, we should rejoin the others. We returned to the control post, and I found myself looking at these astronauts with a new, <laughs> with new eyes. <laughs> nice. Looking at the chin of one, I found it to be more masculine than it seemed earlier. Another's nose was decidedly masculine, and the hairstyles of some were now manly. It occurred to me that if we really do see people as we think, they are not as they are. Anyways, they're looking at planets fly by on the big view screen. Uh, Michelle has a thousand questions. They see a comet which uh, has a colorful tail which zoom past the screen. Michelle is told that it completes a revolution around its sun, approximately 55 of earth years. And Michelle then asks how far are they, you know, how far away um, are they from the object? And Dow responds with four, 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 four I don't know, four like 450 million, kil, you know, kilometers. Dow, how is it you use these numerals of Arabic? And when you speak of kilometers, are you translating that for me, or do you actually use this measurement? Explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. We count in Kato, or Takai. We use the numerals that you recognize as Arabic for the simple reason that it is our own system, one which we took to Earth. What? Okay, explain further. Michelle, we have several hours before arriving on Theuba. This is probably the best time to start educating you seriously on certain matters. If you don't mind, we'll go back to the house where we were before. Hell yeah. And that's it, folks. That's where we're going to learn about the true history of the Earth, and I think that's a good place to put a pin in it. As, uh, you know, the next part's the real history of Earth and uh, the invasion of chicks with dicks. <laughs> Wow, that part is more offensive than Mongoloids, I think. <laughs> dude, that was good. Good job. Yeah, presto. I'm I'm actually pretty impressed by that. Dude. I really I really like when you do these things with the the interview things. I like that. It's fun. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. Good well, job. Uh, the next one that I put together, Steve, I can uh, interject, uh, just erase Sean's name and put your name in there, and we'll let you be the Frenchman. Ooh, that's cool, wee man. Wee. So, we are back for part two of Abduction to the Ninth Planet. Mm. And the bard of this tale has been on a wild ride. And, um, you know, he's on a ship of he-she's. He's witnessed shit from Fallout, like Sean said. And uh, really is on some kind of weird Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy-type quest. He's got his towel. <laughs> and, yeah. And once comfortably reestablished in the Hollis, um, Dow begins her, you know, strange uh, tale. So... He's or do we say he or do we say she? It, the alien, starts uh, off by refer to it as Dow, I guess. All right, so the alien Dow starts <laughs> off by saying, Michelle, one point three million years ago, precisely on the planet Bakaterini of the constellation Centaur, 
A decision was made by the leaders of that planet following numerous conferences and uh, reconnaissance expeditions to send inhabited vessels to the planets Mars and Earth. As their planet was cooling down internally and would become uninhabitable within 500 years. They thought with good reason that it was prefer preferable to evacuate their people to a young planet of the same category. I must tell you that these people uh, were human, very intelligent, and highly involved. A black race, they had thick lips, flattened noses, and frizzy hair, resembling in these ways the blacks now living on Earth. These people have inhabited, had inhabited the planet of Bacchaterini for 8 million years in cohabitation with a yellow-colored race. To be precise, this is what you would call on Earth the Chinese race, and they had inhabited Bacchaterini for 400 years prior to the blacks. The two, numerous, or the two races witnessed numerous revolutions during their time on the planet. We tried to provide relief, assistance, and guidance, but in spite of our intervention, wars broke out periodically. These, along with natural disasters occurred on the planet, served to thin the ranks in both races. Finally, a nuclear war broke out on such a grand scale that the entire planet was plunged into darkness and temperatures fell into minus 40 of your degrees Celsius. Not only did atomic radiation destroy the population, but cold and lack of food accomplished the rest. So take a quick minute here. Um, you know, this is really classic alien abduction, uh, talking about, you know, nuclear war and, you know, all the bad shit that happens with mm -hmm. it. And uh, we're entering this uh, fallout kind of world again. What is negative 40 degrees Celsius to Fahrenheit? Uh, fuck, I don't know. Siri, that <laughs> You're shit. the scientist, not me. Steve, Google it. <laughs> Siri, that shit. Well, okay, so Fahrenheit, if zero degrees Celsius is 32 Fahrenheit, so roughly, you know, air, right about the freezing point. Right. So minus 10. Be like 14. living in Antarctica. I guess. Be, uh, negative 104. <laughs> Negative 104 degrees. Shit. Fire. Okay. Yeah. Really cold. Okay. Really cold. <laughs> really fucking cold. <laughs> All right. So Dow goes on to say, it is a recorded fact that a mere 150 black people and 85 yellow people survived the catastrophe from a population of 7 billion black and 4 billion yellow humans. Following months of confinement in the darkness and intense cold, they were eventually able to risk going outside. The blacks ventured out first finding almost no trees, no plants, no animals to speak of. It was a group isolated from their shelter in the mountains who first knew cannibalism. Because of lack of food, when the weakest died, they were eaten. Then, in order to eat, they had to kill each other, and that was the worst catastrophe on their planet. Another group near the ocean managed to survive by eating the only living things left on the planet, which were not too contaminated. That is, the mollusk and some fish and crustaceans. They still had an unpolluted drinking water thanks to a very ingenious installation uh, enabling them to obtain water from incredible depths. Much the same course of events occurred in the Yellow Territory, so that, as I have said, 150 blacks and 85 yellows remained, and finally, deaths resulting from the war ceased and reproduction began again. All of this occurred in spite of the warnings they had received. 
It should be said that before this almost total decimation of both black and yellow race had obtained a very high level of technological advance. The people lived in great comfort. They worked in factories, private and government enterprises, offices just uh, what you have on your planet. They had a strong devotion to money, which to some meant power, and to others, wiser, it meant well-being. They worked on average 12 hours per week. On Back to Torini, a week comp- uh, comprises six days of 21 hours each. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess it's all about how the planet, you know, revolves around the sun. I mean, I'm all about working average 12 hours a week, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Easy peasy. Let's go to the back of Torini, man. Hit it up. <laughs> they tended to the material rather than the spiritual side of their existence. At the same time, they allowed themselves to be duped and led into circles by a structure of politicians and bureaucrats, exactly as what is happening now on Earth. Gradually, these two great races begin to envy each other, and there is only one step from envy to hate. Eventually, their hatred of each other uh, led so much that the catastrophe occurred. Both possessing very sophisticated arms, they achieved the mutual destruction. Our historical records show, then, that 235 survived the disaster, six of them being children. I speak to you of this 150-year period because this was when both races began to reestablish and when we were able to help them materially. What do you mean? Just a few hours ago, you saw our spacecraft stop above the planet Arimo X3 and take samples of soil, water, and air. Did you not? Uh, yeah. Then you watched as we quite easily annihilated a mass of giant ants as they attacked the inhabitants of the village. Indeed. In this particular case, we helped those people by intervening directly. You saw that they were living in a semi-wild state? Yes, but what happened on that planet? Atomic war, my friend. Always and eternally the same story. Don't forget, Michelle, that the universe is a gigantic atom and everything is affected by that. Your body is composed of atoms. My point is, in all galaxies, each time a planet is inhabited, a certain stage in its evolution, the atom is discovered or rediscovered. Of course, the scientists who discovered it are very soon aware of the disgeneration of the atom can be a formidable weapon, and at one moment or another, the leaders want to use it, just as a child with a box of matches is driven to set fire to a bale of straw in order to see what happens. But I digress. 150 years after the nuclear holocaust, we wanted to help these people. Their immediate need was food. Still, they were subsisting... God, I hate the way this guy writes. Anyways, their immediate need was food, as uh, they were resulting to cannibalism to satisfy their omnivorous yearnings. They needed vegetables and a source of meat. Vegetables, fruit trees, grains, animals, all of that was edible had disappeared from the planet. There remained just enough inedible plants and bushes to replenish the oxygen in the atmosphere. At the same time, an insect resembling in some ways your praying mantis had survived and as a result of spontaneous mutation caused by the atomic radiation had evolved into gigantic proportions. It grew to about 8 meters in height and had become extremely dangerous to the people. So 8 meters, that's uh, almost like 8 feet tall. So that's a big fucking buck. Eight, okay, hold on. No, your math is always... <laughs> oh, here we feet. go. Eight, 8 meters 
uh-huh. can't be eight feet. <laughs> so nine feet? Jesus Christ, hold on. I'm getting it. Eight meters, Preston, Dude. is roughly 26 feet. Jesus Christ, that's a, that's a huge I fucking I said bug. that. <laughs> yeah, he's right. God damn, that's a big one. Uh, it's eight meters, so gotta be eight feet, right? <laughs> eight, eight, it's the same age <laughs> system. <Yeah>. Come on, <laughs> fucking alien! Awesome. <laughs> um, I'm gonna keep that that miscalculation in the alien voice too. <laughs> in addition, the insect, having no natural predator, reproduced rapidly. We flew over the planet, locating the whereabouts of these insects, and pew pew pew, space lasers. <laughs> nope. Next, we had to reintroduce livestock, plants, and trees on the planet according to the species known to have adapted climatically in specific regions before the catastrophe. This, too, was relatively easy. It must have taken years for such a task. <laughs> We're aliens. It took us two days and 21 hours. All complex. And that is actually two days and 21 hours. <laughs> So we help these people materially, but as often when we intervene, we do not allow our our presence to be known, and there are several reasons for that. The first is security. The second reason is a psychological one. If we had made these people aware of our existence, and if they had realized that we were there in order to help them, they would passively have allowed themselves to be helped and would have felt sorry for themselves. This would have adversely affected their will to survive. The third and last reason is the main one. Universal law is well established, and it is strictly enforced as that which controls the planet's revolutions around their suns. If you make a mistake, you pay the penalty, immediately, in ten years, or in ten centuries, but errors must be paid for. Thus, from time to time, we are permitted, or even advised, to offer a helping hand, but we are formally forbidden to serve meals on a plate. In two days, we repopulated their planet with several pairs of animals and reestablished numerous plants so that they, that eventually the people could raise the animals and cultivate the plants and trees. They had to start from scratch, and we guided their progress, either by dreams or by telepathy. At times, we did it by means of a voice coming from the heavens. That is to say, the voice came from our spacecraft, but to them, it came from heaven. Finally, after several centuries, the planet was almost as it had been before the nuclear holocaust. All the same, in some places, deserts had been finally established. In other spots less affected, the flora and fauna were easily developed. 150,000 years later, the civilization was successful, but this time, not only technologically. Knowing that there were other planets inhabited and inhabitable in the galaxy, they mounted one of the most serious exploratory expeditions. Eventually, they penetrated your solar system, first visiting Mars, which was known to be inhabited. The human beings on Mars had no technology, but by contrast, they were highly spiritual. They were very small people, measuring in height between 120 centimeters and 150 centimeters, and of Mongoloid type. (laughs) And real quick, that is four to five feet tall. Yeah, so little midgets. They lived in tribes and in huts of stone. The fauna on Mars was scarce. There was kind of a dwarf goat, some very large hair-like creatures, several species of rats, and the largest animal resembled a buffalo but had a head like a tapir. 
The flora was also uh, poor, trees attaining no more than four meters in height. They had, they had too, an edible grass that you might compare with buckwheat. Like the, like the little rascal? I got a pickle. I got. A <laughs> I got a pickle. Oh. Hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm not. A, I'm not a farmer, so like, as far as like alfalfa and buckwheat, I don't know the difference. But you know, it's a type of grain. The Bacchaterinians conducted their research, realizing soon that Mars was also cooling down at a rate which indicated that it would no longer be inhabitable in four to five thousand years. So peace out, Girl Scouts, and they left the M&Ms to their demise. And that's Martian midgets. <laughs> or midget mongoloids. Oh. Oh. So the two spacecrafts headed for Earth. The first landing took place where Australia is now found. And at that time, it should be explained that Australia, New Guinea, Indonesia, and Malaysia were all part of one continent. I must say, to be more precise, that the black race chose Australia and the yellow people established themselves where Burma is now here too, was a land rich in wildlife. Bases were quickly set up on the coast of the Bay of Bengal, which the black people constructed their first base on the shores of the inland sea in Australia. Later, further bases were established where New Guinea is presently located. Their spacecraft was capable of super light speeds, and it took approximately 50 Earth years to bring 600,000 blacks and the same number of yellow race to the Earth. This bears witness to the perfect understanding and excellent association between the two races determined to survive on a new planet and exist in peace. By common agreement, the aged and infirmed remained in Bacchaterina. Wow. So screw the sick and screw the old. <laughs> wow. So do the, do, do the two races, do they ever cross-populate? Hey, don't jump ahead, motherfucker. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. The Bacchaterinians had explored all of the planet Earth before establishing their bases and were absolutely persuaded that no human life existed before their arrival. Often, the, the, often they thought they had located a humanoid life form, but on closer inspection realized that they had made contact with the species of large apes. Bigfoot! Mm. <laughs> Gravity on Earth was stronger than on their planet, and it was quite uncomfortable initially for the two races, but eventually they adapted very well, so kind of like Superman. <laughs> in building their towns and factories, they were fortunate to import from back to Torini certain materials which were very light and at the same time very strong. At that time, Australia was on the equator. Earth rotated on a different axis, taking 30 hours and 12 minutes to complete a rotation and achieved a revolution around the sun in 280 such days. So, you know, now we're at 364. <laughs> the equatorial climate was not as you will find it today. It was much more humid than now, for Earth's atmosphere had changed. Herds of huge zebras roamed the country, in company with enormous edible birds referred to as dodos, very large jaguars, and another bird measuring almost four meters in height which you have called the Nomus. I've never heard of that bird, so I really don't know. Me neither, but it's like almost uh, 14 feet tall. Yeah. So it must be like one of them weird dinosaur hybrid birds. In certain rivers, there were crocodiles up to 15 meters in length and snakes 25 to 30 meters long. Hell no. 
fucking yeah. fifty foot long snakes that's, and almost that's fucking anaconda. Yeah, it's like the right anaconda there. movie with Ice Cube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, crocodiles that were fifty feet long, snakes almost a hundred feet. Long. Oh hell no! Fuck. That's some Harry yeah. Potter shit. I ain't trying to fuck with that. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Oh, well, could you imagine? Oh, no. Ugh. I'd be riding one of those denarius straight the fuck out. Of <laughs> yeah, I was like, yep. you go to the planet. <laughs> nope. Yeah, straight to no bill. <laughs> I think those denariuses were like uh, chocoboos off of uh, Final Fantasy. Chocoboos. <laughs> Rob's going nuts right now. Anyways, the big fucking snakes and alligators <laughs> nourish themselves on the new arrivals from time to time. Most of the flora and fauna on Earth was totally different from that on Bactrini both from a nutritional and ecological point of view. So let's take some time to thank space black people for bringing us sunflower, maize, wheat, sorghum, uh, tapioca, and others. These plants, either, uh, these plants either didn't exist on Earth or existed in such a primitive state that they couldn't be consumed. The goat and the kangaroo were both imported uh, for the immigrants and were quite partial uh, and they were quite partial to these consuming them in great numbers on their planet and let's not forget the space Asians let's take a moment and thank them for cabbage lettuce parsley coriander and some others for fruits they brought the cherry tree the banana and the orange tree did they also bring rice to- what a racist thing to say it's so yeah. terrible. What the fuck would you ask that, Steve? Why would you ask if the space Asians brought rice to Earth? That's so you give up. the guy one solitary speaking part. He had five lines and he just completely offends everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> All right, I'll do it over again. <clears throat> right. I don't know. Normally I beat Preston with this kind of embarrassment. I might just keep that in there. <laughs> I'd keep it in there. <laughs> okay, you keep it in there. Fuck it. Did they, did they also bring rice to the plant? <laughs> It's so bad. Okay, go ahead. No, Steve, you racist. Rice is a plant absolutely native to Earth, but they did improve it. So materially, they were successful, but they were also careful not to neglect the construction of their immersed meeting halls in which they practiced their cult. Wait, they had a cult? Oh, yes. They were all Takanani, which is to say they all believed in reincarnation, something in the way of present-day lominess due on your planet. There was much travel between the two countries, and they even combined efforts to explore deeper into certain regions of Earth. An African expedition comprised of 50 blacks and 50 yellows brought home elephants, tomatoes, and many mongooses, for they soon discovered the mongoose to be the mortal enemy of snakes. So, you know, you got 50-foot fucking snakes, or 100-foot fucking snakes, and then you need some mongooses to take care of that. <laughs> got my mongoose bike. Yeah. Dude, got pigs on that thing? <laughs> Unfortunately, they also brought brought back with them without realizing it the terrible virus, which is now called yellow fever. In a very short time, millions of people had died without their medical experts even knowing how the sickness had spread. Eventually, the yellow people produced a vac- vaccine that was immediately made available to the blacks, a gesture that reinforced the bonds between friendship and the two races. What were they physically like? When they migrated from Bacchatrini, they were about 230 centimeters tall. They're women, too. They were a beautiful race. The yellow people were smaller in size, the average man measuring 190 centimeters, and the women 180 centimeters. Wow. So the first ones were about seven and a half feet tall, and the yellow people... Okay, so sorry. I guess that was the, the, the black people were about seven and a half feet tall, mm-hmm. and then the yellow people, so racist, were about <laughs> six foot tall. 
Yeah, so not bad. Do I put a disclaimer at the beginning? I don't know, man. Yeah. It's, I, it just yeah. feels so weird saying the yellow people, the black. It's like, oh my I god, know. it's so bad. I mean, it's alien quotes. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's not us being racist. It's really the alien. If I if I put a space filter on it, it's not going to be nearly as upsetting. Yeah, right. But you said that the present day people are the descendants of those people. Why is it that they are now so much smaller? Gravitation, Michelle. Being stronger on Earth than on Bacchaterini, both races gradually became smaller in size. Crossbreeding between the two races began. Thus, the first modern-day ancestor of humanity was born. What became of their planet? It cooled down as predicted and became a desert, much like Mars. What was their political structure like? Very simple election by raised hands of the leader of a village or district. These district leaders elected a town leader as well as eight old people chosen from among those. But this is not a political podcast, Michelle, so let's skip forward. And so, all was going well for the inhabitants of the planet Earth, except for one thing. The astronomers and scholars were very worried, for an enormous asteroid was approaching Earth. It was first picked up by an observatory in Akarado located in the center of Australia. After several months, it could be seen by the naked eye, provided one knew where to look, growing a most sinister, vivid red. Now, I'm going to pause in the story here. This is a very important part, uh, because in a lot of ancient uh, folklore, uh, there's always a uh, description of the, the sky dragon or the destructor, this event that wiped out all humanity. And they always mm. talk about it, uh, you know, filling the sky with fire or, um, you know, foreshadowing with this very vivid red in the sky. So there might be some truth to that. Hmm. Yeah. You fuck with Pangea? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't that be the same thing? The the, the asteroid that hit Earth? Wiped out dinosaurs? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Could be. Yeah. Well, this would have been way before that, you know, yeah. the timelines, but. Could have happened again. Yeah. In the weeks to follow, it became more readily visible. The governments of Australia, New Guinea, and Antarctica had made an important decision, which was soon agreed to by the Yellow Leaders. Ahead of the inevitable collision with the asteroid, they agreed that all space vessels in a condition to fly would leave Earth, carrying on board as many specialists and experts as possible. So doctors, technicians, teachers, artists, etc., the kind most likely to be of service to the community following the catastrophe. Where were they going? To the moon? No, Michelle. At the time, Earth didn't have a moon. Their spacecraft was now capable of 12 weeks of autonomous flight. For a long time, their capability for super-long-distance travel had been lost to them. Their plan was to remain in orbit around Earth, ready to land as soon as possible and give assistance where it was most needed. In order to leave Earth's atmosphere and gravitational force quickly, it was necessary to make use of a warp, which at this time was above present-day Europe. In spite of the speed these space vessels were capable of, they had not quite made it to the warp when the asteroid hit Earth. When it entered the Earth's atmosphere, it had broken into three huge pieces. The smallest hit the Red Sea. Another, much bigger, hit where the Timor Sea is now, and the largest of the three landed in a region of the actual Galapagos Islands. The simultaneous impact was terrible. The sun became a dull red and slid toward the horizon like a falling balloon. Soon it stopped and climbed slowly, but only to half the distance it fell. 
The Earth had suddenly changed in the inclination of its axis. Explosions of incredible force occurred, for two larger pieces of the asteroid had pierced Earth's crust. Volcanoes erupted in Australia and New Guinea, Japan, South America. Just about everywhere on the planet, mountains formed instantly and tidal waves more than 300 meters in height swept over four-fifths of Australia. Tasmania separated from Australia, and a huge portion of Antarctica sank in the waters, creating two immense underwater canyons between Antarctica and Australia. An enormous continent rose uh, from the waters in, central, in the center of, south, of the South Pacific Ocean. A huge piece of Burma subsided where the Bay of Bengal is now. Another basin of land subsided and the Red Sea was formed. Was there time for the spaceships to get out? Not quite, Michelle, for the experts had made one mistake. They had predicted the tilting of the Earth on its axis, but what they hadn't been able to predict was its oscillation. The spacecraft was literally caught in an anti-gravitational warp and dragged into the backwash caused by the re-entry of the asteroid into the, to the Earth's atmosphere. Further, they were bombarded by millions of particles coming from the asteroid and trailing in its wake. Only seven vessels, three with black passengers and four with yellow, struggling with all the power they could manage, succeeded in escaping from the horror occurring on Earth. It must have been a frightening sight for them to watch Earth change before their eyes. How long did it take for the continent you mentioned in the Pacific Ocean to emerge? Merely a matter of hours. This continent was raised by a gaseous belt resulting from upheavals occurring as deep as the center of the planet. The upheavals on the Earth's surface continued for months. In, this, in the three points of impact of the asteroid, thousands of volcanoes were created. Poisonous gases spread all over most of, Aust of the Australian continent, causing painless deaths in minutes of millions of people. Our statistics indicated that almost a total annihilation of humankind and animals occurred in Australia. A count taken uh, when calm was restored indicated a mere 180 people had survived. The poisonous gases were the cause of this fright toll. In New Guinea, where less gas had drifted, there were fewer deaths. I've been wanting to ask you a question. Go on. When we gonna fuck? <laughs> <laughs> okay, <hold on. laughs> you said that it was the black. <laughs> oh, I hate! I hate doing this. It feels so awkward. Okay, <clears throat> you said that it was the black people from Australia who spread to New Guinea and Africa. How is it then that now the Aborigines are so different from the blacks throughout the world? Excellent question, Michelle. My count should have included more detail. You see, as a result of the catastrophe, there had been such an upheaval that deposits of uranium scattered on the surface of Earth and emitted a strong radiation. This happened only in Australia, and those who escaped death were badly affected, just as in an atomic explosion. They were genetically affected so that today the genes of Africans are different from those of the Aborigines. Further, the environment totally changed, and their diet drastically altered too. With the progress of time, these descendants of the Bacchaterines were transformed into the aboriginal race of today. As the upheavals continued, mountains were formed, some suddenly, others within days. Crevices opened, swallowing entire towns and then closing, removing all traces of the existing civilization. 
On top of all the horror, there was a deluge such as the planet had not known for eons. In fact, the volcano spat so many ashes into the sky simultaneously and to such an incredible altitude that the sky darkened. The vapor from the oceans, which in places actually boiled over an area of thousands of square kilometers, combined with the clouds of ashes, the thick clouds thus created burst with rain so uh, torrential you would find it hard to imagine. And the vessels orbiting in space? After 12 weeks, they were obliged to return to Earth. They chose to descend over the area we know, now know as Europe. Having absolutely no visibility over the rest of the planet, one of the seven vessels was the only one who managed to land. The others were hurled into the ground by gales which occurred over the planet uh, cyclone-like winds of three to 400 kilometers per hour. The main cause of these winds was uh, differences in temperature, in turn, this caused a sudden volcanic eruption, so the sole remaining spaceship managed to land in what is now called Greenland. There were only 95 yellow passengers on board, many of whom were doctors and experts of various kinds. Having landed in extremely adverse conditions, damage, was, uh, damage occurred which made it impossible for the vessel to take off again. However, it remained useful for shelter. They had provisions enough to last a long time, so they organized themselves as best as they could. About one month later, they were engulfed in an earthquake. The spacecraft, too. God, these guys can't catch a fucking break. Yeah. No, not at all. I'm just like picturing this like if this was like an animation or a movie. This shit just is so intense. Yeah. Spoiler. Everyone dies. <laughs> Game over, man. So about one month later, they were all engulfed in an earthquake that, and the spacecraft too. And it was with this last catastrophe that all trace of civilization on Earth was destroyed. The chain of catastrophes that followed the collision with the asteroid had dispersed in entire populations, including New Guinea, Burma, China, and in Africa, although the region of the Sahara suffered to a lesser extent than elsewhere. However, all the towns established in the Red Sea uh, area were all engulf engulfed by the newly formed sea. In brief, no city remained on Earth, and millions of people and animals had been wiped out. It was therefore not long before widespread famine occurred. And that's it. That's the end of uh, part two, uh, because after that, uh, she takes uh, Michelle to the Golden Planet, and he finds out his true mission and purpose in life. Wow. Is the Golden Planet yeah. coy for something? No, it's it's just it's called the Golden Planet. Because you're teasing the listeners, uh, Preston. Yeah, you've given yeah, them the bait in part one. And now you're dragging it's a lot it of out. rainfall there, and they refer to them as golden showers. Actually, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of peep peep. Well, hell yeah, man. And now yeah. this is all just one book, right? Yeah, this is all just one book. That's so crazy. That's cool. And this oh, was yeah. one extremely large chapter of information. Golly, no doubt. Well, what's crazy to me is like, how many books does this guy have written? Do we know off the top? Uh, four, I think. Four. So the only thing that gives me trouble with this is like, and I had the same problem with Communion. Communion's a fantastic book. This mm -hmm. book is a lot of fun too. But then I wonder like, where does the line blur in these stories if we want to believe that the first books really happened? Like Communion really happened. This abduction right. really happened. So, like, what do we have to just automatically believe the following, you know, four or five novels happened as well? 
Or is it like, okay, now I should really just embellish this story and, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened and this happened and this happened? That's let's, the only trouble I have. Let's uh, let's look up and see real quick. I mean, it's not that I don't want to believe in this stuff, but it does kind of give me a little bit of a problem. And it's like, fuck, all right. Now, in, in chapter, you know, in, in book four, this happened. Because <laughs> I think we, we'll cover communion one day, but I think it gets to the point where Whitley believes that maybe he was like involved in a government funded kidnapping where he went to a special school hmm. late night for like gifted children and shit like that midnight yeah. school or whatever. So let's uh, so let's break down his books real quick to see if there's uh, you know a connection because I mean Strieber's books all kind of connect they're like one big you mm-hmm. know giant ongoing story so Michelle Desmarquette wrote a book in 2018 called Nature's Revenge the best ecological novel ever written and uh, the premise for that book is scientific studies have shown that plants are telepathic and communicate with each other. If we could only hear them, we would know what they could feel when they are in danger. And what is the threat? We humans. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Whoa. In 1996, he wrote a book called She and I. In 96, he wrote that. Okay. Yeah. Now, when was Abduction to the Ninth Planet? 93. Oh, okay. So it wasn't too far apart then. No, but this one doesn't have a description on what it's about. It just has like um, on the front cover, it's got a naked lady standing inside a bigger purple body with a little alien embryo in it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Then let's see. He wrote another book in 97 called He the Uvia which also doesn't have a description on what the fuck it's about. <laughs> gotcha. So, yeah, I don't know. He, he really knows how to just rope you in, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Great job on that, dude. I can't wait to uh, finish things up with Chapter 3. Yeah. So the alien Dow turns to Michelle and says, Now it is time to explain to you our motives for bringing you to Theuba. We are entrusting you with a mission. This mission, if you choose to accept it, is to report all that you are going to see, live, and hear during your time with us. Report everything in one or several books that you will write when you return to Earth. We have been observing the behavior of the people on your planet for thousands and thousands of years, as you now realize. A certain percentage of these people are arriving at a very critical point in history, and we feel that the time has come to assist them. If they will listen, we can ensure they will take the right path. This is why you have been chosen. So take that, George Lucas. (laughs) But I am not a writer. Why haven't you chosen a good writer, someone well-known, or a good journalist? And I want to point out that we've struggled trying to reread some of this shit. Like, punctuation is not his forte, so goddamn right. He's not a good writer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the only writers who might have done it, as must be done, are dead. Plato, Victor Hugo, would have been our first pick, and they still would have reported the facts with too much stylistic embellishment. This fucking egomaniac. They end up with this dude. 
this guy. No. Don't get a twist with Michelle. We could have had a Shakespeare, maybe at Scott's Fitzgerald, but you're listen, gonna have to do. Listen, we wanted Plato, but we settled for the Dollar Tree version. <laughs> you, Michelle. <laughs> Right, but we require the most precise account possible. Well, then you need a journalist reporter. Michelle, you know yourself that journalists on your planet are so inclined towards sensationalism that they often distort the truth. How often, for example, do you see news reports that differ from one channel or paper to paper? Whom do you believe when one gives death tolls in an earthquake at 75, yet another says 62, and another 95? You average that shit together. <laughs> do you really imagine we would trust the journalist? You're absolutely right. I guess I'll be your sloppy second choice. That's what she said. <laughs> we have observed you, and we know all about you. As we know about the others on Earth, and you were selected. But why exactly me? I'm not the only one on Earth capable of objectivity. Big word. In time, you will learn the principal reason behind our choice. Michelle, almost 2,000 years ago, did they believe that Christ was sent by God as he claimed? Now, however, there are millions who believe what he said. Look, now that you have brought religion into this, and after all that I've seen, I've been aching to ask you this one question. Who is God? Does he or she exist? On an ancient stone tablet, which I believe is called the Nikal, it is written, In the beginning there was nothing, all was darkness and silence. The Spirit, the superior intelligent, the grand architect of the universe, decided to create the words, and he commanded to four superior forces. Look, monkey man, it's extremely difficult for the human mind, even with highly developed, to comprehend such a thing. In fact, in a sense, it is impossible. But shit, let's give it a shot. In the beginning, there was nothing except darkness and the spirit. The spirit. The spirit was and is infinitely powerful. Wait, wasn't that a shitty movie, too? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Powerful beyond the comprehension of any human mind. The spirit is so powerful that he was able, by the action of his will alone, to trigger an atomic explosion with chain reactions and unimaginable forces. In fact, the spirit imagined the worlds he imagined how to create them, from the most enormous to the most minuscule. He imagined the atoms when he imagined them he created, in his imagination, all that moved and all that will move, all that lived and will live, all that is motionless or seemed to be very to be a very single thing. But it existed only in his imagination. All was still in darkness. Once we had an overall view of what he wanted to create, he was able, by his exceptional spiritual force, to create instantaneously the four forces of the universe. With these, he directed the first and most gigantic atomic explosion of all time, what certain people on Earth call the Big Bang. Darkness was gone, and the universe was creating itself according to the will of the Spirit. The Spirit was thus, is still, and always will be at the center of the universe, for he is the master and creator of it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay wait the bible thumpers had it right i mean it pretty close to the story of god as the christian religion teaches it 
Michelle, I speak of no religion such as exists on earth. Don't confuse religion with the creation and the simplicity of all that ensued. Don't confuse logic with the illogical distortions of religions. During billions of years, however, for the Creator, of course, it was internally the present. All the world's suns and atoms were formed as you were taught in school, the planets revolving around their suns and sometimes with their own satellites. At certain times in certain solar systems, some planets cool down, soil is formed, rocks solidified, oceans are formed, and land masses became continents. All this was in the beginning, in the imagination of the spirit. What we call his first force, the atomic force. At this stage, by his second force, he conceived primary living creatures and many of the primary planets, from which later derived the subspecies. The second force we will call the oval cosmic force, as these creatures and plants were created by simple cosmic rays, which ended up with cosmic eggs. At the very beginning, the spirit imagined experiencing feelings through, the, uh, through a special creature, he had imagined man by means of the third force that we will call the oval cosmic force. Thus man was created. Have you ever considered, Michelle, what, intelligent, what intelligence it took to create a human being or even an animal? Blood that circulates thanks to the heart that beats millions of times independently of the will. Lungs that purify the blood by means of a complex system. The nervous system, the brain which gives the orders aided by the five senses. The spinal cord, which is ultra-sensitive and which will make you instantly withdraw your hand from a hot stove so you won't, won't burn yourself. Have you ever wondered why that of the billions of individuals on the planet like yours, there are no two fingerprints the same, and why what we call the crystalline of the blood is just a unique among individuals as the fingerprint? Your experts and technicians on Earth and on other planets have tried and still try to create a human body. Have they succeeded? In regards to the robots they have made, not even the most highly perfected will ever be more than a vulgar machine in comparison with that of the human mechanism. So, 25 minutes after this deep and heavy uh, theology lesson, their ship now approaches the Yuba. And Michelle goes on to describe it as a planet being covered in a mist of gold, luminous with a, a shimmer that no words can put into perspective. This is actually very similar for me to the uh, story of Zachariah Stitchin and tells of the Anunnaki, you know, stories of gods who came to earth. They were giant um, and they came here to mine gold to repair their planet's atmosphere. So maybe like the Anunnaki and the Thubians are the same thing. Maybe not. I don't know. Anyways, they land and on the view screen of the ship, Michelle now describes what he saw. What captivated me most was the color before me. I was dazzled. All the colors were on each tonal variation more vivid than ours. A bright green, for example, almost shone it radiated color. A dark green had the opposite effect. It kept its color. It is extremely difficult to describe, for the colors on this planet could not be compared with any that exist on Earth. A red could be recognized as red, but it wasn't the red we know. There is a word in Thou's language which defines the types of colors on Earth and on planets similar to ours. Our colors are... Kalabluka, which I translate sure. as dull. <laughs> Theirs, on the other hand, are Thelosikovaniki, which means they radiate their colors from within. So before him laid a vast city of egg-like structures, which Dow tells him are the buildings on this planet. And Michelle at this time noticed how similar they are to the sh shape of the ships and probes that he had seen on his journey here. Lots of probes. 
Ooh. Michelle, there is something more important that I must explain to you. Our planet contains many surprises for you, but there are two which could be harmful, which could have harmful effects on you. I must therefore ensure that you take certain elementary precautions. The Yuba does not have the same gravitational forces as your planet Earth. Your weight would be 70 kilograms on Earth. Here, it would be 47 kilograms. When you leave the spacecraft, if you aren't careful, you risk losing your sense of equilibrium in your movements and your reflexes. You'll be inclined to take too great a stride and perhaps fall and injure yourself. But I don't understand. In your spacecraft, I feel fine. We've adjusted the gravitational pull to match that uh, of yours to make your journey comfortable. But for a whole planet, we cannot. The second point is you'll have to wear a mask. For a while, at least. For the brightness and colors will literally intoxicate you as if you have drunk alcohol. The colors and vibrations that act on certain points on your psychological body would be too much. So they get in the space shuttle transportation thing and bam, they make their way to town. And uh, they come up to a town hall type building where he introduces, uh, where he's introduced to about 30 people, all whom look the same age. And Michelle describes the following. Their faces wore expressions of sincere joy and goodness, and I was deeply touched by the warmth of their reception. It was as if they considered me one of them. Dow explained their principal question was, why is he so sad? Is he ill? But I am not sad. I know, but they're not accustomed to the facial expressions of the people of Earth. Faces here, as you can see, reflect a perpetual happiness. So, from this, I'm guessing Earthlings appear to have resting dick face all the time because these aliens are, like, over the top with facial expressions. So, moving past the RDF, they finish up their meet and greet and make their way back to the Star Wars speeder. They're cruising at a whopping 45 miles per hour. So you think that they're on the golden planet like this bitch could haul ass, but they're moving like grandpa. <laughs> Warm and fragrant. Michelle. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Warm and fragrant, and I again felt euphoric in a way I've never felt on Earth. We arrived at the edge of a forest, and I remember thinking, my God, those trees are at least 600 feet tall. Pandora shit. <laughs> 850 feet to be exact, and some of them are 8,000 of your Earth years old. <laughs> Would you like to see your apartment now, Michelle? Or shall we explore the forest? Forest of tranquility? Aside from the vivid colors and butterflies, which were three feet in wingspan, giant hummingbirds and macaws, it was just a forest, similar to Earth, but with some LSD behind it. (laughs) Okay, hold on. You go from fucking trees that are going to eat you, and you're like, nope, that's boring. But these big ass <laughs> fucking butterflies, oh my god, that'd be insane. Look, Steve, if you want to experience it, just go hit some acid and then stand outside because basically it just makes the colors brighter and things are a little bit bigger. It's crazy. I mean, Do you- it's not like, you know, I was expecting like, you know, giant, like, uh, uh, uh what is it, the, the Venus fly traps and like all that weird shit. And <laughs> yeah. he was just like, and the butterflies were feet, three feet wide. The macaws were really big and bright. The trees were really tall. (laughs) True. I feel frustrated in my attempts to describe the colors I experienced on this planet. I had the constant impression that the colors came out within and shone with a a brilliance no Earth-born person could put into words. For on Earth, we might know 15 shades of red, but here there were hundreds of shades of each color. But the color wasn't the only thing to catch my attention. Music came from all directions. A constant soft noise, when I, I could only describe to something akin to a flute. 
Dow had explained it was the music of the colors and all life on Tioba, music from the vibrations of light radiating from objects. So they take back off uh, above the trees and pass a river that's jade green in color and an ocean so clear Michelle could see fish, but they were like fish mixed with platypuses. And a beach with hundreds of naked aliens sunbathing as they approached a group of tiny islands. Those fish there, are they sharks? No, Michelle. They are called digics. Think of them as cousins to dolphins on your planet. Wait, holy shit, what's that over there? Are those people flying? Yes, Michelle, it is how we travel on Theuba. We use a form of levitation through the vibrations of the planet. However, it is too much to teach you at the moment, which is why we are utilizing this hovercraft. So they land on the island, and Michelle has shown his apartment. It's like an egg-shaped structure lying on its side. It's about 145 feet in length. It is shown it shown a brilliant white with no visible door, yet they are able to pass through the outer wall with ease. And from inside, the walls were transparent, and the landscape from outside could be seen in all of its glory. Wait, how the hell is that even possible? You see, Michelle, the habitation exists because of a magnetic force field. Every human, animal, and mineral has a natural force or aura surrounding it. Its natural universal shape is that of an oval. We have copied this into an electro-etheric vibration grounded to a nucleus which sets over there in the center of the room. Oh, that smaller egg-shaped thing. Yes, Michelle, it creates a force field so strong that not even the strongest winds or rain could penetrate it. Indeed. So we find out that the house uses the vibrations to heat and cool air. A special stone is used to draw moisture out of the air to make drinkable water. The kitchen had these different colored cubes, which were concentrated forms of various foods like fish, meat, cheese, and other things. And a cube which they called manna, or bread. Now, manna was also the food of the Israelites uh, that they ate when they wandered the desert after the exodus from Egypt, given to them by God, and is the number one food the aliens take to them when they travel across interstellar space. And Dow then explains that the word for home on this planet is pronounced doko. She then handed uh, Michelle a set of robes whose colors matched his aura. Michelle, Michelle, the color of your robes were chosen according to the color of your aura, which is the reason why you feel so good on this planet. If the people on Earth could see these auras and dress accordingly, there would be no need for pain pills or other medication. Anyways, they then made their way to the city of the Nine Dokos. They made their way to a center building. Michelle noticed the room was bathed in a gold light. The Doko was empty except for a series of seven chairs, arranged in a semicircle and each occupied by individuals who by first glance appeared to be petrified. Their eyes glowed from within. Gold light shone around their bodies. Then the head of the, uh, the Kung Fu monk turned towards Michelle and spoke. As Dao has already explained to you, Michelle, you have been chosen by us to visit this planet, report what you have witnessed, what you have seen. Doing so will aid in the enlightenment for the people of Earth. The time has come for certain events must occur. After several thousands of years of darkness and savagery on Earth, a so-called civilization appeared, and technology developed and accelerated for a 150-year period. It had been roughly... 14,500 years before any other civilization had come close to matching it. However, technology is nothing compared to the power of true knowledge. Michelle, 
understand technology alone can be harmful to the human race. Harmful because it is only material knowledge gained through the use of technology, not spiritual knowledge. Technology should aid in the development of spirituality, not confine those within materialistic worlds, which is happening now, at this very moment, on the planet Earth. It's true. Your lives consist of pursuit for wealth, wealth that leads to jealousy, envy, and hatred between the wealthy and the poor. In short, your technology is taking your society down a darker path. So after this, Qui-Gon Jinn explains <laughs> the universe is created around a system of nine. So your higher self or the id, your guardian angel, whatever it is that people call it, is made up of nine parts, including your corporal form and your astral form. Patronus. Your Patronus. Your higher <laughs> self is, is the lower part of a nine-part system that goes all the way back to the creator of the universe. So basically, like, all of us are a fraction, a ninth part of God. The universe itself, the solar systems, life can only exist on a solar system that have nine planets. So if you have, like, a, a sun that only has, like, two gas giants, you're never going to find life around it. So this uh, this concept of the number nine is sacred. So any solar system out there that has nine planets, you bet your bottom dollar it's going to have life. And planets can be broken down by nine categories. People who live on a number nine planet are the most advanced, and they have the top stage of spirituality and technology like Theuba. Anyone here care to guess where Earth is at? Two. <laughs> Three. Fucking level one. We are the kidney garden of the universe. <laughs> we are so bad that everybody else in the universe calls Earth the planet of sorrows. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> the alien greys rank above us. That's how bad we are. Damn. Yeah. We learned that Earth's greatest flaw or problem is not that of global warming or the harm today's activists say we are doing to the planet. For there is a greater harm that we're doing to our spiritual selves, our astral beings, and it boils down to noise pollution. Pollution that affects the very vibration that our higher self resonates at. And do y'all know what the worst noise pollution is? Wow. Discotech. <laughs> they tell Michelle that the worst <laughs> creation in the universe is, in fact, disco music. What? Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah, it's I'm really bad. It, it it throws off <laughs> so, your vibrations, dog. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to finally say it. After that comment, <laughs> I get the feeling this guy is writing this story to reflect his own personal views, <laughs> religious beliefs, and poor taste in music. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, that's the last straw. Fuck you, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, I would actually say you know if anything's gonna fuck up your vibrations, it would be dubstep over discotech. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I try, if I want to raise my vibrations, I just turn on the BG's greatest hits, man. <laughs> uh, 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 staying alive, staying alive. Shit gets my blood pumping. Uh, what was that uh, band from the 2000s um, from Jamiroquai? Yeah. There you go. That's Can't the go 90s, wrong. but you were close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to him in the late 90s and early 2000s. So, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, after all this heavy shit, they make their way back to his apartment. The next day, they explore more of the planet. He sees more of the animals and fauna. Everything's the same, but bigger. He sees more nudists on the beaches, but... He describes them as having a rounder hips 
than uh, any female on the planet Earth with bright blonde mm. hair and a slight appearance of peach fuzz on their lips. Big, beautiful breasts with a skin tone similar to that of Arabs. Yet he never describes in any detail what the plumbing looks like. <laughs> oh <my laughs> He's God. describing Shakira thus far. <laughs> so we're going to have to use our imagination. <laughs> oh, I almost forgot. So as they're checking out the news on the beaches, these horses land. But they're not just any horses. They're horses with wings. And not just any horses with wings, of course, but horses with big, beautiful female heads. So, like, these weird, fucked-up centaur things. Whoa. <laughs> so, they have a deep conversation about the life and the universe and everything, and Dow throws out this little gem. Everyone has a need, both physically and emotionally, for the friendship of his neighbor. And not only on your planet, but on others as well. As Jesus said when we sent him to you 2,000 years ago, love each other. Hold up. What did you just say about Jesus? That's right, Michelle. We sent Jesus to Earth from this planet 2,000 years ago. All right, I'm going to head out. <laughs> That's great. Everything in life has a purpose. You, me, a midget at a circus. <laughs> so, at this point, Michelle is told that he is a uh, succubus which is a soul that has lived 81 times across multiple planets. We learn that the Hebrews arrive from outer space, and from time to time the Theubians punished the Hebrews for their dirty deeds. And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible was actually caused by them by crashing a spaceship into the city. Awesome. <laughs> Michelle, every time you read, and the Lord said this, you should replace that with, the Theubians said this. Heavy shit, man. <laughs> Anyways, at this point in the book, we learn more biblical history. Jesus was like Anakin Skywalker and created by the Force. And I'm not joking. The aliens willed the cells and shit together to form the perfect body to allow Jesus' level 8 astral body to inhabit the physical form here on Earth. We learn Jesus had another uh, a brother named Aruki and that they went on a journey through India, Japan, and finally China where Aruki died. So upset by his brother's death, Jesus cut off a lock of his hair and carried it with him until his death. Jesus, at age 50, married and had children and a wife in Japan and died and was buried there. Now, we actually covered this on a previous show about the, oh, I can't think of the name now, but it, it was basically, there's this town where they have a temple or a shrine. Oh, I remember that. Of Jesus. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, anyways. The aliens created an imposter Jesus, and that's who was crucified in the real Jesus' place. He was an alien named Aroke, and he transferred his or her astral body into a clone body to look like the real Jesus. He was crucified, and in a flash of light, they abducted his body and repaired it and brought him back to life, proving to the masses, a.k.a. simpletons, that there is a creator, life after death, so forth, and so on. So, after all this... Where do we go? Where do we go now? To a giant fucking gold egg shaped building in the middle of the planet. <laughs> That's where she takes him next. He walks inside and he sees 250 people floating in a circular pattern in the air. <laughs> he asks some questions like, why are they meditating? They and why do they look? Michelle. Yeah, wh why do they all float? Exactly. Think of that scene in you know, the first It movie, mm -hmm. like how those kids are floating. It's basically what these bodies look like. 
Dal explains that they are corpses floating in a state of perfection. She explains some have been there for thousands and thousands of years from all over the galaxy. They float up to a body of a man who looked to have died in the prime of his life. Michelle describes him as having chestnut hair, which is long and curly, noble features, and a short stubby goatee on his face. And at this moment, Dow confirms that this is in fact a body of an earth human. But just not anybody. That's right, folks. Jesus H. Christ himself <laughs> is floating in a state of preservation on an alien planet along with the other masters of the universe. <laughs> he man's up there. <laughs> and that's it. They oh just they zap God. him back and he's back on Earth and uh, he wrote a book. That's so crazy. That story t- started like <laughs> from the first episode started out so great. And then at the end, it's just like, all right, we need to wrap this <laughs> <It> shit up. <laughs> it just takes such a big shit right at the end. I was, like, I was not expecting all this Christianity to Jesus Christ stuff, man. That's nuts. Gosh, <laughs> man. Oh, well. <laughs> it was fun. That was really good, though. I really, really enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for the fucking Bible study at the end. Yeah, I wasn't. I was like, wait, what? What? Oh, this is getting good. Yeah. Oh man! Like, okay, so what other masters of the universe would be floating up there? Would uh, so think? he describes uh, in detail. There was a, a guy with uh, long gray hair, but his body had like Gandalf. a golden hue. So think of the aliens off of Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, the, you know how they had like the gold skin. And then uh, there was another alien that was female, and uh, he goes into detail about how her body was pleasantly shaped, and she had nice boobs, and um, but the, she had no eyes. She had this weird proboscis-like horn that came out of the middle of her head, and at the end of that was a series of not like knobs that uh, Dow explained were like uh, fly eyes, so like off of like a, a fly, how they have like those little hexagon shapes or whatever. Oh, yeah. And so basically every time like there's a lower planet, like a level one, level two, um, to help advance them spiritually, the Theubians will send somebody to that planet. And then if something goes awry or after they've spent their time on that planet and helped them along, then they bring them back and basically have like this, you know, mausoleum where they can just go and, you know, celebrate all their good deeds and shit. Huh. That's crazy. I mean, it's a, it's so there's a like cool story nonetheless. How it all 250, uh, you know, alien Jesuses floating around on this building. Right. Wow. Pretty inter- interesting story altogether, you know, even if he'd made it up, you know. Yeah. Still pretty cool, I think. Yeah, I enjoy it. But here's the thing, though. If you think about him making it up, like the shit that you read in here is so batshit crazy and you know it does come across as you know racist um there's you know like the religious aspect to it is pretty heavy if if it were fan fiction like i would write it you know why not just write it as a fan fiction i think it would sell better as a fan fiction but he built this as a true story and now, like, you know, it didn't make him millions. It didn't make him a lot of money. Like, people read this and, like, dude, this guy is fucking batshit crazy. Like, he's labeled mm-hmm. as the crazy guy. Yeah. So that that might, you know, lend some credibility to the story. That makes sense, yeah, because he could if he could have sold it as fiction, you know. They could have made yeah. money off of it, way more money. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's kind of mm-hmm. weird when you, when you think about stuff like that. There's been a lot of projects throughout history that have been like that. Are they telling the truth? <laughs> and. And this was only what one of how many books? 
one out of four, and the, the last book that he wrote has nothing to do with aliens, but it has to do with the feeling of plants and how plants communicate fear um, from all the bad shit that humans do. This dollar store Plato is pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> right? All right, folks, there you have it. The Abduction to the Ninth Planet Mastercut. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. I hope that made that whole entire epic, episodic adventure a little more audible. (laughs) And I will definitely watch the filters I use in the future. So thanks again for listening, guys. Have a great week. We will catch you next week, probably right on Christmas Day with our Christmas special. And speaking of Christmas, if you want to jump back and listen to our Christmas special from episode 17, you might jump back in the time machine and give that one a go if you haven't yet. Lots of good stuff in there. All right. Thank you so much, guys. We will catch you all next time. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown, tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.